Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about the calls coming into the COVID-19 hotline. Anybody in the catchment area that has questions about testing, symptoms, the results, what they should do, they call the hotline and no matter where they are, even if they were outside of the 18 county area, we would definitely facilitate what they needed. And a physician will walk us through what's important to know about the vaccine that could help us end the pandemic. We can trust this, and this should really be a cause of celebration. At the end of a year without a lot of cause for celebration, that these independent groups who are experts in their field think that these vaccines are as promising as they, as they seem to be. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk about the new variation of the coronavirus that is circulating. Then, the two directors of Upstate's COVID-19 hotline talk about the calls they're fielding. But first, we'll explore what's important to know about the COVID-19 vaccine. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Now that a vaccine is available to protect against COVID-19, eventually we will each face the decision about whether to get the shot. Here with me to help answer frequently asked questions about the vaccine is Dr. Katie Anderson. She's an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Anderson. Thanks for having me back. So some people are skeptical about the safety of the vaccines, which were developed so quickly. How do we know that these vaccines are safe? So currently there are two licensed vaccines in the United States, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. And together, these have been studied for at least two months in over 70,000 people across the globe, and now even longer for many of them. And none of the 70,000 people who have gotten the vaccines have reported any serious health problems to date. Regarding the speed of development, it's true that the timeline for development was faster than is typical for vaccines. However, the development of the vaccines was not compromised, nor were any corners cut at any point in development. So the rapid evaluation and the approval of these vaccines was made, was made possible by pursuing multiple steps in parallel at the same time. So, for example, the companies taking the financial risk to scale up production before they got the approval from the FDA. Um, administrative hurdles were streamlined. There were lots of individuals who were eager to volunteer. And unfortunately, there's a lot of COVID in our area that allowed them to evaluate the protective levels um, much more quickly than would be typical. How can we be sure that the vaccine approval process was not corrupted? So we're fortunate to live in a country um, in the United States that has one of the most rigorous and transparent processes for approving vaccines on the globe. Um, and many people may not know this, but it may be reassuring for them to hear that there's multiple checks in place. And for me, perhaps most reassuringly, there are independent advisory boards who meet and advise the FDA, advise the CDC in these um, available public hearings. So one of them was the VRBAC, which met prior to the FDA's issuance of the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine. And these are independent boards of vaccine experts, independent scientists, clinicians who are beyond political, financial, corporate interest. They are independent specialists that are well-respected in the community. The ACIP, ACIP, met prior to the CDC's um, recommendations regarding the Pfizer vaccine. And these are both, the VRBAC and the ACIP are widely respected advisory boards. And that's what, they're one of the reasons that for me and also for many of my colleagues, when we were asked a month ago, what do you think about these vaccines? We said, well, we'll wait and see and make up our mind after the Verbeck and the ACIP meet. Both of these committees met and they concluded that these vaccines are safe and effective. So we can trust this. And this should really be a cause of celebration at the end of a year without a lot of cause for celebration that these independent groups who are experts in their field think that these vaccines are as promising as they, as they seem to be. So Pfizer, if I understand correctly, Pfizer and Moderna are both mRNA vaccines. Can you tell us how they differ 
the others that are, some of them are still in development, but, but I guess AstraZeneca has been approved in some countries. Correct. So Pfizer and Moderna are both messenger RNA or mRNA vaccines, which is different than most of the other vaccines that are in development now for COVID and many of the other vaccines that we get for other um, infectious diseases. So previous vaccines typically would use a weakened or a dead virus in this case to try to trick the body into creating an immune response. These mRNA vaccines are almost like a mission impossible um, note or, you know, an instruction given to your cells where the mRNA is a tiny piece of the genetic code for, in this case, the virus that causes um, COVID-19. It goes into your cell and instructs the cell's machinery to start making that spike protein that is just one small part of the surface of the COVID-19 virus. And so that when your body um, may become exposed to the virus at some point in the future, it can fight it off. Um, the mRNA vaccine platform is actually another reason why these vaccines were able to be developed so quickly. Um, mRNA vaccines have been around for evaluation for the treatment of cancer and also for infectious diseases for about 30 years now. And they had already been trialed in thousands of people before COVID-19 came along. So the tricky part for these was getting the platform developed, the mRNA vaccine platform. But then the great promise for these had always been how quickly you could switch in different pieces of genetic code for cancers, for viruses. And so when SARS-CoV-2 arrived, and we knew what the genetic code was based upon um, what the Chinese researchers were publishing very early on, it was quick for them to um, switch in the spike protein and get these vaccines developed. So these mRNA vaccines, do they alter a person's genetic code? So the way that these vaccines work is that they deliver a short, very short-lived message to your cells, um, and then they are quickly destroyed. They're pretty unstable pieces of genetic code and your body gets rid of them quickly. They also don't get into the nucleus of your cells where your DNA resides. So there's no way that they could change your genetic code. There's actually no way that they could have lasting effects on, on your biology. In a lot of ways, these vaccines are actually more specific and more localized and more short-lived in their effects than a lot of the other vaccines that we already have. Can the vaccine give you COVID? No, it can't. Um, the mRNA vaccines have just a small piece, just that spike protein that's on the surface of the, the virus and all the pictures that we see. Um, it doesn't make the whole virus. It cannot recreate COVID-19 virus. And it actually, um, for most tests, it would not make you test positive for COVID as well. So are the other types of vaccines being developed? Are they, do they use like the killed virus? There's a, there's a variety, um, dozens of different COVID-19 vaccines that are being developed now. Some are weakened, some are dead virus, and some of them are recombinant or combination virus vaccines. Um, so they may take a little bit longer to um, reach approval and evaluation. Now, will people have a choice of which type of vaccine that they get? And are there certain people that are recommended for the mRNA versus another type of vaccine? So right now with the two vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, individuals will likely not have a choice as to which one they receive. However, they're remarkably similar. So both of them seem to give similar levels of protection, which are very high. Um, Moderna and Pfizer both um, were shown to demonstrate 94 to 95% protection, which is, which is very high. They're both two-dose vaccines. Um, and they differ only in how they need to be stored with Pfizer needing to be stored at slightly lower temperature and the timing of the booster dose. So for Pfizer, it comes at three weeks. For Moderna, it would come at four weeks after your first dose. Um, while I say that they're somewhat interchangeable, you can't mix and match the vaccine. So you couldn't get Pfizer for the first dose and Moderna for the second dose. So for now, it's not likely that you will be able to choose, nor would we really recommend that you try to because these vaccines are so similar. As other vaccines go forward, we'll have to see how they perform and what types of populations they may be recommended for. Well, I know as the vaccine is being rolled out, it's going to like front time frontline healthcare workers first. Once there's a bigger supply of the vaccine for everyone, who is recommended to get it? Is there an age range? Well, so so first off, I'll say that there are very few individuals who we would recommend um, do not get the vaccine or who are ineligible to get the vaccine at this time. 
Notably, a big gap right now is vaccines for children. So the Pfizer vaccine is only approved for individuals who are 16 years or older, and Moderna is only approved for those 18 years or older. Um, there are currently um, clinical trials to lower the age limit to 12 years for both of these vaccines. The only other group right now who we would suggest does not get the vaccine is individuals who have a history of severe allergies to the vaccine components or other vaccines. So most other people, um, most other adults, I should say, um, would be eligible to get the vaccine when it's made available to them. But there are some groups, for example, pregnant women, those who have severe or active medical conditions who may want to discuss with their primary care doctor before they go forward with it. So really, it needs to be discussed with your doctor. If you fall into that category, if you have cancer or you're taking medications that affect your immune system, some of those situations, people just have to get advice from their doctor. Yeah, so for many individuals, it would be recommended if you have concerns to speak with your doctor. But what, what, what it will come down to is weighing the risk of severe disease with COVID, which we know is real. And unfortunately, in the United States and in our area, the risk of infection is high with COVID. So weighing those known risks against, at this point, somewhat hypothetical risks of how it could impact your health just from getting the vaccine. Um, I'll, I'll restate that in, in terms of the 70,000 people, and now many hundreds of thousands more people who have gotten the vaccines, first in clinical trials, and now as they're being administered to the public, we've seen no long-term serious side effects from vaccination, which is in contrast to what we know can be a serious outcome with COVID-19 infection. But the clinical trials for both of these vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, did exclude pregnant women. They excluded individuals who had active, serious um, medical conditions. And so we don't know a lot about how the vaccine performs in those individuals. Do you need to be healthy to get the vaccine? If you have like a head cold, are you able to get vaccinated still? Um, so if you have flu-like symptoms, if you have the sniffles, if you have a fever, if you have body aches, um, those could all be COVID symptoms. So. You can get the vaccines if you've had COVID in the past. You're eligible to get the vaccine and you're encouraged to get the vaccine if you've had COVID already at this point in the pandemic. But if you are feeling ill at the time that you're wanting to go in and get your vaccine, the recommendation would be that you get a COVID test. And if it's positive, that you wait until the end of your quarantine period to go and get the vaccine. And the reason for that is to limit exposure, limit exposure to the people who are giving the vaccines and your community members. But otherwise, um, you don't need to be in perfectly good health um, at the time of vaccination. Because again, even for people who have chronic medical conditions, likely the risk of getting COVID infection is going to be more severe than the risk of any hypothetical severe outcome from COVID vaccination. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Katie Anderson. She's an assistant professor of medicine and also microbiology and immunology at Upstate. And we're talking about the COVID-19 vaccine. What would you say to someone who says they're at low risk for serious disease from COVID-19 about why they need to get vaccinated as opposed to just taking their chances in case they get infected? So there are two main reasons why all individuals are encouraged to get these effective vaccines as soon as possible and so long as they're eligible. So the first is for your health. So COVID-19 remains a potentially fatal infection and certainly a very serious infection. And even for people who may seem to be low risk, even for young people, we've seen multiple instances of these individuals become critically ill and unfortunately die from COVID. These vaccines are safe and effective, and the risk of severe COVID is real for all of us. But the second reason that all eligible individuals should get vaccinated as soon as possible is to protect those around you. So this would include vulnerable individuals in your, in your home as well as out in the community. You could be infected and not know it, and you could pass the serious infection on to someone who may become sick. So to put it plainly, and the big picture is that these vaccines are currently our best hope to get out of this pandemic and to return to some degree of normalcy. But that's only if enough of us get vaccinated, including those of us who seem to be at low risk and including those of us who are young. If we don't, this need for physical distancing, this burden on our communities, this level of disease and suffering will continue much longer than is frankly necessary because this is now a vaccine preventable disease. 
So we can't really predict who is not going to be affected by the vaccine. You may think that you're not in a high-risk category, but you could still become infected and have a very severe case. Do we know or can we predict who might have a reaction to the vaccine? I've, I've heard of some allergic reactions that, are, that have been severe among just a few people, but is there a way to predict whether a person is going to be one of the people who has a severe reaction? Yeah, so to be clear, um, there have been some reactions reported to the vaccines, but these have been mild to moderate, meaning that most people were still able to go carry on with their work. They were all short-lived, so they lasted about 24 to 36 hours after getting the vaccine, um, and they were not long-lasting. And these reactions to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines included 60 to 70 percent of people had some arm pain, which we can experience with tetanus vaccines, for example. And maybe 30 to 50 percent of individuals who got vaccine compared to placebo had some increase in systemic side effects. So that would be things like having a headache, feeling fatigued, um, maybe 10, 20 percent had fever. This, again, was very short lived and it um, for most people was mild to moderate. There were no severe, there were no severe reactions. So allergy and anaphylaxis is, is different. So that's different than a side effect to a vaccine. This is an allergic response to a vaccine. And for the COVID-19 vaccines, there have been a handful of cases of anaphylaxis. At my last count, it was less than a dozen globally um, where people had a severe allergic reaction following vaccination. These can occur with any vaccine. And given that over 3 million doses of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines have now been given. This is a, a rare outcome. We can't predict who necessarily will develop anaphylaxis, but this outcome is one of the reasons that the FDA and the CDC recommend that one of these groups who should not get the vaccine at this time are individuals who have had anaphylaxis to prior vaccines or reactions to any of the products in the vaccines. But I will say that it's estimated that over 50 million Americans have allergies to foods, drugs, things outside of the COVID-19 vaccine, and they are eligible to get this vaccine. Just because you have allergies doesn't mean you shouldn't get it. They may wish to discuss with their primary care provider in advance of getting the vaccine, or they may wish to be monitored for a longer period of time following vaccination, particularly if they've had anaphylaxis in the past, but they are eligible to get this vaccine. Anaphylaxis is a very severe allergic reaction. Um, it can be distinguished from, we were talking about some of the local side effects of vaccines, um, the allergic reactions could include difficulty breathing or your throat closing up, um, facial swelling. Um, other allergic reactions may include rash. Um, but anaphylaxis, even this very severe allergic reaction, can be quickly treated um, if it's identified quickly. Because I've heard they ask you to wait 15 minutes afterward, and that's what that's for, right, to see if you're going to have a reaction. Yeah, the recommendation is monitoring for 15 minutes um, if you're just a general member of the populace, um, and it's 30 minutes recommended if you have a history of anaphylaxis. Now, you mentioned um, some of the reactions that might be expected after getting a shot. Um, a sore arm, um, maybe, for, it would be typical, some other things. Are we likely to feel that more on the first shot or the second shot? So there were more reactions noted after the second dose compared to the first. Um, and again, I'll, I'll emphasize that these reactions were mild to moderate. Um, most people were still able to work, but at the same time, it's good to bear in mind that there is some arm pain. You may feel a little bit crummy after the second dose, so you can plan for that. For example, you'd, you don't need to have your vaccination occur on a Friday before a day off, but you may wish to plan for that. And certainly you wouldn't want to say vaccinate a whole emergency department where some people may be experiencing symptoms as part of one large group at the same time. How will we know that the um, vaccination is working? In other words, how long until it takes effect once we have the vaccine? So we believe it will take about four to five weeks for you to be protected after you start your vaccine series. So for Pfizer, for example, after you get your first dose, there's a three-week waiting period to get your second dose. And the 95% protection for Pfizer was reported after getting both doses and then monitored over the, the two months that followed that. So likely four to five weeks for, for both of the vaccines. Notably, 
after just a single dose of the vaccine, protection was only 50%. So two things to point out is after your first dose, you are not fully protected. And even after your second dose for both vaccines, four to 5% of people were not protected. And we have no clear way to say after you got vaccinated, if you're one of the one in 20 who is not protected, or if you're one of the 95%, uh, which means that you need to continue to wear your mask, you need to continue to social distance, whether you're vaccinated or not. HealthLink on Air will be right back with more information about the COVID-19 vaccine. Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Katie Anderson about vaccination for COVID-19. Are the vaccines meant to protect the person who gets vaccinated from becoming infected or from becoming sick? In other words, do we believe a person might still be able to become infected and potentially spread the disease without feeling sick themselves? Well, the clinical trials for Moderna and Pfizer found that vaccine prevented 95% of COVID illnesses. So they were looking at, at disease or illness um, in people who got the vaccine compared to people who got um, salt water or placebo. The vaccines do work to generate immunity or protection against the virus. And so it's possible and possibly even likely that it does reduce your ability to become infected and to transmit, but the clinical trials weren't designed to assess this. So going forward, we're going to need to do a lot more research to better understand how these vaccines impact transmission and do protect you against getting infected. But for now, we need to go forward assuming that people who are vaccinated can still become infected and can still spread the virus to others. So again, still continuing to wear masks, still continuing to social distance. I've seen some social media claims um, saying that the vaccine can have an effect on a person's fertility. Was there any evidence of that in any of the trials for men or women? Thank you for that question, because it's a very understandable concern, but it's one that I think we need to discuss so that we can debunk it. Um, currently, there's no reason to think and there's no evidence to suggest that the vaccine can make men or women infertile, and there's no evidence of infertility issues. There was a false claim that was circulating online and, and widely, widely circulated that the new vaccine can threaten women's fertility by harming the placenta, and this is not true. The basis for this claim was the incorrect suggestion that the vaccine could cause you to somehow make antibodies that would cause the woman's body to attack a protein on the placenta. But in fact, these proteins are so different, the spike protein on the virus and the placenta have a similarity that's um, in common only in a very small region, and there's no reason to think that the same antibodies could lock onto COVID and the placenta. And also, we have not observed an increase in miscarriage or fetal loss with natural infection with COVID. So we don't have any reason to think with natural COVID infection that the antibodies that you're causing to the, or uh, generating to the spike protein can cause you to attack your placenta. So, there's more data to come on this. Um, the FDA does require companies to conduct reproductive toxicity studies in animals to look at how it might affect fertility, um, how a vaccine might affect um, pregnancy. Um, so these should be done soon for Pfizer and they have already been completed for Moderna and they had no concerning findings. But we currently have no indication that the vaccines can cause any issues with infertility. We have no reason to think that they will. And we do know that COVID-19 itself, that the infection can be more severe for pregnant women. And so that is why it is um, encouraged that pregnant women do consider getting vaccinated, that they discuss with their OBGYNs if they have any concerns, but that likely this is one of those groups where the risk of a natural infection with COVID is likely gonna outweigh any hypothetical and unobserved risks of getting a vaccine. Now, let me ask you about people who have had COVID-19 and have antibodies do they still need to get vaccinated? Individuals who had COVID previously are eligible and they're encouraged to get the vaccine, whether they have symptoms or no symptoms. And testing for COVID is not recommended or required prior to getting the vaccine. We're still learning a lot about how the immune response to the virus, uh, how long it may persist, how it may vary person to person. 
And the clinical trials have also included individuals who previously had COVID and found that one, it can generate a strong immune response in them, so it works, and that it's safe in them. So these folks who've had COVID before can only stand to benefit from vaccination. So even if they were treated with convalescent plasma in the hospital, they should still consider getting vaccinated. Well, that, that's a good question because this is one of those groups where there's a little bit of an asterisk. So individuals who had COVID previously and were treated with plasma or these monoclonal uh, antibody drugs, the recommendations are that they do wait 90 days after getting treated with these um, interventions before they get the vaccine. And the two reasons for that are that uh, we wouldn't want to have any interference in the immune response, but more importantly, while we don't know how long immunity lasts from COVID vaccination or from a natural infection, we do think there's strong evidence that you're protected for at least 90 days. So we don't think there's any harm in suggesting that these folks who had COVID and were treated with these um, monoclonals or convalescent plasma, uh, we think it's unlikely that they will um, become infected and have any risk of illness during that 90 days. And we wanna make sure that they have the best chance of getting a good immune response. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Katie Anderson, an assistant professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and we're talking about the COVID-19 vaccine. So I was going to ask you how long the immunity will last, and I guess that's a little bit unknown, um, but do you think that this could be a vaccine that becomes seasonal like the flu vaccine? Right, so we don't we don't know yet how long immunity will last, um, either from a natural COVID infection or from the COVID-19 vaccine. We do know that other coronaviruses that are similar to COVID-19 or related to it can reinfect people and cause multiple infections over their lifetime. And of course, that would not be what we would hope for with COVID-19. Um, we do know that there's clear short protection from the vaccine. Um, again, 95% protection following vaccination for Pfizer, 94% for Moderna. That's really, really high. It's, it's higher than many of the vaccines we commonly get. So for example, the effectiveness of last year's flu vaccine was 45%. Um, so going forward, we don't know if we're gonna ultimately need booster doses of the vaccines. If our immunity wanes over time, if the virus may evolve and change and we need to get an updated vaccine like with flu. Um, but right now, that's really a question and a problem for another day when we have more time and more data. For right now, we know that in the short term, these vaccines have great promise to work and we really need to turn the, turn the corner on this pandemic, saving lives and allowing some steps back towards normalcy. So do we have an idea yet whether this vaccine is gonna be effective against this new variant that we've read about um, that's considered more transmissible. I guess it was overseas, but now there are some cases in America that have been discovered. Do we think this vaccine will be effective against this new variant? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so there is increasing evidence from the UK, and I'd say it's somewhat convincing that there is a new variant of the virus that is more transmissible, maybe 70% more infectious. Uh, we don't have any reason to think that the current vaccines will not protect against this variant. Um, and I do think, if anything, it should motivate us to get vaccinated more quickly. And what this would mean is that the level of immunity that we would need in our community to protect against a more transmissible, transmissible COVID-19 would be even higher. So the way that we should interpret that is currently uh, no reason to think that the vaccines wouldn't protect against this new strain, but we should all be getting vaccinated as soon as we are eligible in order to slow the spread. So we should be concerned about a variant that spreads more easily, even though it doesn't seem to make people sicker, but we still need to worry about it because it spreads so much easier? Well, I would say that it is a reminder of our call um, to the importance of the simple measures of social distancing, of wearing your mask, of hand washing, of staying home when you're sick, and now, thankfully, of getting your effective COVID-19 vaccine as soon as you can. So the evidence, you're, you're correct, is that the new variant is not more serious, but that it spreads more easily. And there's also some suggestion that it may infect children more easily than the last few months of the COVID that we've had in our area. So 
it, what it, again, what it will mean is that more of us need to be protected to slow the spread. And so all of us should be getting vaccinated as soon as we can. So you mentioned mask wearing and uh, physical distancing, all of these measures that we're all so tired of. Can we stop those after we get vaccinated? For now, the, the short answer is, is no, we can't. And people who are vaccinated need to continue doing the same protective measures as people who have not yet been vaccinated. And that's for two reasons. So first is um, the vaccine is clearly protective against illness, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. But we don't know that the vaccine prevents you from being able to be infected or growing the virus in your nose and throat and infecting other people. We also um, know from the data that while the vaccine was very effective preventing 95% of illnesses, there's still a 5% chance that the vaccine did not work for you or one out of every 20 people. So given the high levels of transmission in our area, that risk is still too high. So going forward, unfortunately, um, despite vaccination, we will need to continue wearing masks, social distancing until we have a better understanding of how the vaccine prevents transmission, until transmission in our area is clearly declining, and until we have a better sense of how long these vaccines actually protect you from infection and illness. So for the, the foreseeable future, we all need to continue this new, this new normal. Can you make a projection on how long you think until there is a vaccine that will be available for teens and children? I mean, are we talking another year or or sooner? Well, again, the, the age limits for the current vaccines are the Pfizer's available for 16 and up, Moderna's 18 and up. Both companies are pursuing clinical trials to drop the lower age limit to 12 and up. So they're doing trials in adolescents and teenagers right now. But unfortunately, there are no clinical trials of these vaccines that are ongoing in infants, toddlers, or younger children. And I imagine that will happen at some point in the future, but at this point, it seems unlikely, unfortunately, that there will be a vaccine available for younger children before next fall. I've heard a lot of talk about herd immunity. So if a person, say, doesn't like needles or, or whatever, will they be safe from getting COVID-19 if most everybody else gets vaccinated? Or would the unvaccinated still be susceptible to the virus by passing it among themselves or catching it from someone who was vaccinated but didn't get sick? Well, so let's let's first define herd immunity and uh, the different routes we have to get there. So put simply, herd, herd immunity is the level of immunity that needs to be achieved in a population to stop the spread of the virus. And it typically doesn't need to be 100%. But the more transmissible a virus is, the higher level of immunity we need in the population or higher level of herd immunity. So for example, for measles, which is one of the most transmissible viruses that we know of, 93 to 95% of the population is accepted as the threshold for how many people need to be immune to stop the spread. For less transmissible viruses like influenza and Ebola, herd immunity can be lower, like 40 to 60%. And SARS-CoV-2 or the virus that causes COVID-19 is likely somewhere in between. So there's two routes to herd immunity. And the first, which would spare the most lives and prevent the most disease, would be to get to high levels of immunity through vaccination, which now increasingly seems like a viable option for us. And this should be our goal. The second route, which has been suggested by some over recent months, is to simply get this over with, stop the shutdowns, and let infections occur, and let the virus go through our population. Uh, with 1.8 million deaths so far globally from this virus, this is a um, very risky approach. And it's now avoidable given the arrival of vaccines. So our goal should really be to pursue getting to herd immunity through widespread vaccination of the vast majority of the populace as soon as possible. Thank you so much to Dr. Katie Anderson. She's an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Who is calling the COVID-19 hotline and what are they asking about? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 
Upstate Medical University launched a COVID-19 triage hotline back in March at the start of the pandemic. The triage line is staffed by healthcare professionals. It's free and open to the public by calling 315-464-3979. Today, I'm speaking with the co-directors of the hotline, Michelle Kaliva and Joey Angelina. Michelle is Administrative Director of the Upstate New York Poison Center, and Joey is Administrative Director of the Triage and Transfer Center. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. So, how many calls is your staff fielding on a daily basis? Michelle, let's start with you. We can get as many as 250 to 300 calls. So, roughly, we say between two and 300 during the course of a day. Now, what are the hours that the hotline operates when you say a day? Monday through Friday, the hotline is open from 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. On Saturdays, it is open from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. Okay. Thanks, Joey. Now, um, who are the people, I know it's healthcare professionals, but who are the people that are fielding the phone calls? So we have staff from across the campus, kind of an unusual situation when right now um, we have retirees, people that have worked at Upstate, who then retired, that have come back in a per diem capacity. Joey and I both have staff, staff from our own other departments that are staffing and helping out. We have nurses that are on light duty. We have public health educators. We have a really interesting um, group of, of professionals working this hotline. And of the phone calls that you're getting, are they, uh, where, where are they, where do they come from? Is it the whole, is it Onondaga County or is it broader than that? Joey? When the hotline was started in March, it was uh, developed as a regional hotline for the 18 county catchment area around Upstate University Hospital. And we've even received phone calls from out of state. Okay. So with anybody in the catchment area that has questions about testing, symptoms, the results, what they should do, they call the hotline and no matter where they are, even if they were outside of the 18 county area, we would definitely, you know, facilitate what they needed. Let's talk about the calls themselves. When this started in March, what are the what were the type of calls that you were getting way back at the beginning of all of this? What were those like, Michelle? So in March, there was a, a little bit of um, just confusion and even some degree of panic. So people were calling saying, what is this? What do we do to prevent it? Um, even as far as saying we've called our doctor's office and they don't know the answer, so they're having us call you. So in March, there was some real heightened angst and anxiety around this. And it was a lot of, again, tell us what the symptoms are. What do we do to avoid it? We dispelled an awful lot of myths back then um, and how it was transmitted or even, you know, kind of going through what some of the symptoms were. It's interesting because our callers were sort of ahead of the curve. They would call us with symptoms that wouldn't be on the list that the CDC had, had talked about, but Two weeks later, three weeks later, they were on the CDC's list. So our callers were provided great insight as to what was almost forecasting as to what was going to come down, you know, a month later. That's interesting. What are what are the main symptoms that are being reported? Do, I mean, because you some of the conversation you're talking to the callers about their symptoms. What what are the main symptoms that you hear about? Well, back in March, it started with the, with the main three shortness of breath, a fever, and or a cough. That list has grown over the last nine, 10 months to be up to, you know, 15 or 16 different different symptoms from the, the initial three to a headache, loss of taste, loss of smell, chills, a sore throat, muscle pain, any type of, of flu-like symptoms, so nausea, diarrhea, uh, any type of new lesion on the skin, whether it's a rash or a blister, um, you know, joint pain, muscle pain, general malaise. You know, it, it sounds a lot like the flu uh, when it comes to, to the symptomatic presentation. So, at what point, if it, you know, if as people are describing things like that, at what point do you tell them, 
you know, hey, you need to go to the hospital or or does it ever get to that point? Oh, it does. And it did, especially early on, people would describe him difficulty breathing and we would connect with 911. And even as recently as, you know, last week, we've had callers that sound very, very ill and have needed to, um, you know, to get some medical attention. And we'll even facilitate them getting um, in touch with a physician if they don't have one. Did Have you had callers that are just um, panicking about this and need, uh, you know, need to be calmed down in some way or reassured? Does that happen? There, there definitely are those. There are those. The anxiety level has definitely risen again from where it was over the summer with this, you know, new wave of, of positive cases that we're having. But it's not, not every caller is, is at that level. We have, you know, especially the staff that work in our other departments that are able to take control of a call and give the caller what they need to, you know, hopefully relax some of their anxiety and, and the unknown is, is what really is driving their behavior. With people that are describing symptoms, um, do you tell them that they need to be tested or that they should assume they're positive at this point? Um, what is what is the advice? If people are having symptoms or, or, or not, if they've been exposed to somebody that is symptomatic, we are recommending, we're giving them um, uh, all of the resources available where they can get tested. So we will absolutely let them know where they can get tested, how long the turnaround time is going to be, what to expect. We go through all of that. And many of our calls right now do reflect that. A lot, most of our callers right now are calling to say, I'm around somebody who's been sick. What do I need to do? And where do I get tested? But I interject a little bit about the, your previous question with a person who might be um, panicked or concerned. If somebody expresses real anxiety, we do connect them with a mental health provider within upstate. So we're able to do that in real time. So if somebody's in distress, we we take down their information, we reach out to our upstate colleagues and they are on it very, very quickly. So we've been able to provide that as well. Well, that's good to know. And it seems like all of the testing sites, there's been a lot of changes in um, location and days and times. And so it seems like this is really serving you know, a big need to have this phone number available. And I'll say it again, 315-464-3979. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Michelle Kaliva and Joey Angelina about Upstate's COVID-19 hotline, which has been in operation since March 2020. So I want to ask you, as the vaccine is becoming available, at least to healthcare workers now, but soon to the public, your team is likely to get a lot of questions about it. What sorts of questions are you anticipating? Michelle? We are, again, working with our upstate colleagues and we're putting together resources and um, question and answer. And so we are up and ready um, and, and willing to handle all of those types of calls and questions. So we're actually gearing up for that. So there's no information in terms of where to go or how soon a person will be able to get a vaccine if someone calls? Not as, as of yet. Yeah, right. not as of yet. They're they're planning that. They're they're laying the, the groundwork for distribution based on how the state has dictated that the order of, of vaccination goes out. And they're they're working closely with you know other hospitals, other professionals so that it's it's rolled out according to the New York State plan. And we're already receiving phone calls from people on this hotline about the vaccine. And we do what we can to, to get the answer from the appropriate people at this time. Well, what can you tell us about the coronavirus virtual assistant? And I'll let our listeners know they can find this at the upstate.edu website by searching for coronavirus virtual assistant. The virtual assistant is the chatbot on the upstate website that asks a series of questions to the user that helps them decide whether or not they need to be tested or not. Okay. And that was put in place, I'm going to say late spring, mm -hmm. uh, that was, was rolled out as a, another option for people that don't want to call the hotline 
and there's there's different types of 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 people that need information. There's those that really want to talk to a live person, and there's those that are more technologically savvy that want to work through a chat bot and be told what to do. So it it really is beneficial to have both options for those that don't really want to take the time to make a phone call. So you reach a broader population that way, it sounds like. Yes, and yes. it cuts down on the call volume on, on the hotline for those that are able to work through the chatbot and get their answer that way. Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask each of you about your roles in your in your regular um, jobs. Um, Joey, as the director of Triage and Transfer Center, um, how has the pandemic impacted the Triage and Transfer Center? Triage and Transfer Center is a telehealth department where everything we do is also over the phone. So we have seen an increase in transfers into the organization at both campuses because of people needing a higher level of care or specialty service that we provide here at, at Upstate University Hospital. We also provide the employee hotline at the triage and transfer center for any employee that has questions about symptoms, testings, exposures, quarantines. That came into fruition in February and that call volume has increased unbelievably with, with providing the staff a, a private hotline themselves. And our triage calls, we have contracts with developmentally disabled group homes in 46 out of 62 counties in the state. And the group homes are being hit pretty hard with the pandemic too. So they call us for after hours nurse triage with the individuals that live in these group homes that are also sick with COVID and, and trying to manage their symptoms. So call volume across the department has risen exponentially since this began in March. And Michelle, what about over at the Poison Center? Are you seeing an increase in calls you think might be related in some way to the pandemic? We certainly are. Certainly um, our Poison Center, but also the Poison Centers across the country, sadly are seeing a, a bump in intentional overdoses. So there are um, more people um, not able to access the, the, their, their mental health support systems because, you know, things closed down, people are you know, able to do some of it virtually, but not as extensively as they had been able to before. So those support systems are broken down. So yes, we are sadly seeing a bump in, in intentional overdoses. And there's been a shift in the, the age cohort. We're seeing a younger population, which is um, disconcerting to us. Uh, we're seeing more of a teenage population. Again, I, you know, we're attributing it to, at least we're postulating that it's related to some of the the decrease in socialization that's occurring. But in addition to that, we're seeing an increase in calls around cleaning products. And that's been a shift um, from the small children getting an accidental taste to adults being overzealous perhaps in, in using their Clorox and other cleaning products and foods being contaminated with Clorox spray and, and that type of thing. So it's been a very interesting um, shift in, in who we're getting calls from. And we've spent a lot of time talking about safe use of cleaning products. The other thing is that we're gearing up for uh, the vaccination. Uh, poison centers, again, across the country are seeing this as well, that people that if they're having or think they're having an adverse effect from the vaccine will be calling poison centers. That's a, you know, a reportable adverse effect. So we are gearing up for a bump in that call volume as well. That's good to know. Thank you to Michelle Kaliva and Joey Angelina who co-direct the COVID-19 hotline. And that number again is 315-464-3979. This has been Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Eric Mahan Howd and Catherine Howd Mahan are married poets who teach at Ithaca College. Their writing styles are different, but they each sent us a powerful response to our request for poems about the pandemic. First is Eric's poem, Inside Artist wears day masks and washes them before going to bed in the claustrophobic night. Inside artist 
draws with blood pools on kitchen tiles, a sword piercing yellow pajamas patterned with strewn tarot cards. Inside artist dreams rainbows over June weddings and fresh air gasped by an audience under a red moon amphitheater. Inside artist waits for blindfolds reveal, a sharp shine of sun needling the back of vision. Inside artist wears thin and hungers for words delivered by touchless bodies with gloved hands, blue and powdered like a warm spring day. And now Catherine's poem, when she tells me pansies will die, I say no. I say my purple and yellow joy will thrive, will persevere against skies of violent gray, against what we call virus. My garden is not ignorant, but it shouts green, and green shoots thrive. Who needs count false roots of twisted lies? I disregard close panic, try to push aside what to me that I will not survive. When I was born, the world split hard, and ever since, I've learned to live with what my dark, endangered love can give. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new way to treat atrial fibrillation. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.